I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. On today's episode, we speak with Adam Vasquez, founder of Herd Media, a podcast production agency and host of the Content is for Closers podcast. Adam's company helps professionals and creators produce and distribute their podcasts. Adam has a unique background in marketing. From writing an award-winning commercial at VaynerMedia to interviewing leading creators, Adam has a unique understanding of using content to effectively market products and services. He uses his podcast to raise his profile and for business development. His work allows him to see the real-world impact and data behind the latest trends in podcasting. Listen now as Adam walks us through working for one of the leading business influencers on the planet, taking the leap to start his own company, and the future of podcasting. On to the interview. Okay, I want to welcome on Adam Vasquez. He is the co-founder of Herd Media and host of the popular Content is for Closers podcast, uh, which had me on a couple of months ago. So Adam, thanks for uh, returning the favor and welcome to the show. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. It's uh, great to be here. Weird to have someone else doing the intro and not be saying it myself, but I, I like it. Jason interviewed me on our last show and he had to do the intro and you know we both felt like fish out of water for about 10 seconds. <laughs> It's good. Good to mix it up. So you will kind of give the primer. We recorded an intro prior to this, but you host a podcast interviewing creators about content and how it relates to their business model, similar to this show. And then you have an agency that helps produce and distribute and set up podcasts for others. So that's kind of your, you know, your current role, but walk us through your origin story that led you up to Herd Media and hosting your current show. Yeah, I have kind of a backwards career trajectory, I'd say. So I started off working in consulting and was working for a company called Wipro, which is global, 100,000 employee, you know, digital transformation consultancy. And, um, you know, I don't know what I was doing there telling these executives what to do as a 22, 24 year old, why they listen to me. I don't know, you know, all those things, but worked there for some years and got just a lot of broad strategic experience, like how to do research and, and what matters objectively and, and all these types of things. And then from there moved into working on the agency level at VaynerMedia, which is Gary Vaynerchuk's shop. And so, you know, the way that Vayner works, they take a lot of the stuff that's in the clouds and get very, very specific with it, very tactical for the brands that they work with, which was a great experience for me. I had I had spent a bunch of time up here, but hadn't gotten into the weeds uh, just by the, the role of my function or the function of my role. And so that was great. I got to work with a bunch of different brands in the CPG space and the healthcare space. I got to be a lot more involved in the creative process and uh, wrote a commercial that ended up going to Cannes and, and winning all these awards. And so it was just this very diverse experience. And that's part of what they do at Vayner. That you know, everyone's kind of a utility player and gets a ton of different at bats. And so new though, going into Vayner that I wanted to come out being able to start my own company and even said that in my interviews. And if you know anything about that company, that was something that I think was embraced and they definitely helped me on my way when it was time to move on. And so I was there for a couple of years and then decided like, I want to try this on my own, you know, everybody entrepreneurial age, blah, blah, blah. And really just jumped out without knowing what I was going to do. In fact, what happened was I got a promotion. I was making more money than I'd ever made before. And I was immediately fearful that if that happened again, I wasn't going to be able to convince my wife <laughs> that I was going to leave you know, for, for no money. And so it just felt like the right time. We had saved some money up. We you know, had that a little bit of air cover there, but really just jumped out without any clients or real specific idea of what it is I was going to do aside from marketing, which is so broad. And so 
went ahead and did that. And along the way, started taking on some freelance customers or clients, people who maybe wanted the Vayner experience, but couldn't afford them or, you know, wanted strategy work, these types of things. And realized, okay, we got to get the word out here somewhere or I'm going to end up back, you know, looking for that job again and hoping I get that promotion still. And so the thing that we used in order to start getting the word out was we started a podcast. This was five and a half years ago now. And so there were podcasts, but not everyone and their mother had one at the time. And so we started one and it got a lot of attention, a lot of attention that we didn't deserve because of some of the guests that we had on. So Gary came on, which was a huge help uh, that allowed us to track a bunch of other guests. It got picked up by a local news media company. And then we got picked up by a national media piece on the power of local podcasting. And so it was just a domino effect where some things fell our way and we got all this attention and it quickly opened our eyes to, oh, wow, there's this whole industry here, this whole cottage industry of people who need podcasts, you know, don't know how to go about it from like what device to record on to how to produce it in a professional way to how to obviously promote it. And we kind of just started doing that as a one-off to help other people get their podcast started and had some companies reach out and say, hey, could you do this? We know you do marketing, but could you just help us with our podcast and we'll pay you a fee for that? And so that service was born. And uh, long story short, the last five and a half years, it's kind of fleshed out into what Herd Media is today as a podcast and YouTube production agency. Um, and now we work primarily with tech companies and, and venture capitalist firms, but that's sort of the journey of how we got here. What was the commercial about? Oh, it's called The Stain. It was for Stainmaster, the carpet company. And uh, it's a little bit hard to explain, but essentially we I wrote a horror film, the trailer for a horror film, where uh, a family's moving into a new home and the stain comes back and haunts them. I and see. I just wrote it. I didn't obviously create, like shoot it and everything. The production team did all the magic, but it looked like a legitimate trailer for a movie. And so when they put it out on YouTube and, you know, all over the internet, it outperformed their um, Super Bowl ad that year just because people started sharing it, saying like, let's go see this together and didn't realize it was an ad, you know, at first. So it got that kind of viral effect. And, and uh, yeah, that's what it was for. <laughs> So let's start at Vayner for a sec. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's a lot of responsibility at a young age at a shop that I imagine a lot of people in the space want to work at just because of Gary is, sure. you know, is who he is. So it's probably, you know, no shortage of applications, you know, they take in. What was that experience like for you being able to create something that wound up on TV at a relatively young age, doing the tactical stuff? You know, I always found in my career that, you know, just doing stuff that seemed like, I don't want to say grunt work, but mm -hmm. doing the doing early on. On has paid unbelievable dividends because you understand a little bit about everything now that you know you're doing stuff it's a little bit higher level so talk more about your experience there yeah so I'm sure a lot of people listening you know know Gary and are like hey this is a dream job for me right yeah yeah and it was a great a great company to work for a great job I mean really the kudos for that whole successful project goes to the culture of VaynerMedia, first of all, and then the creative director I was working with, Chris Logsdon. And I say the culture because I was an account person. I was in charge of a bunch of accounts that we were running in the healthcare space. But I had an idea and I had talked to Chris Logsdon, who was a creative director, about this itch I had to be a little bit more in the weeds with the creative. 
And he was like, well, what you just said, Kyle, like, you just got to do it, you know, just jump in and do whatever it is that you feel like you want to do. So the next brief that came up, you know, people usually say that, especially in management. Yeah, just go ahead and try your best, do the work, whatever. The next brief for an unrelated account, like I wasn't on Stainmaster, they weren't my client, but he, Chris pulled me in and said, hey, here's the next uh, brief. Like you said, you wanted to write on this pitch us ideas. And so I did, you know, I think we came up with like 30 or 40 ideas, a lot of terrible ones. (laughs) And, um, and Chris was really helpful to me meeting with me before work. We met at this coffee shop down by the office, meeting with me after work, going through these things. And then when we pitched the concept to the client, they picked it. It was kind of like a, oh no, what do we do now? Like (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. And so, yeah, it it really just the opportunities that they provided. And I would just say for anyone who's familiar with them, that's kind of their ethos. They want the best idea to win out. They're not super precious on roles and all that sort of thing. So it it plays to what they, who they have been as a company. But um, yeah, that's kind of how that played out. So the spiel is real. You know, what we see on YouTube and Instagram from Gary, like they walk the walk, it sounds like. Yeah, he does play a, a character, I would say. And I think he says that. But he's also just like in real life, he's just everything that you think he is and a very genuine, kind person and has been super helpful to me in my career. That's great. I was just going to say kudos to Chris. I mean, I'm not sure what Chris's position exactly was, but Kyle and I talked about this. There is a, I'm not calling Chris a middle manager, so Chris, if you're listening, but there is a middle manager crisis in America. It is awful. And I'm sure VaynerMedia, it's not because there's good leadership, but there's probably so many other listeners out there who have the ambition to do more. And then the person who is sitting you know, next to them or above them in that position to help them sucks. Mm. You know, So kudos for that whole process for actually working out and then leads on to more success. So that's obviously a much more broader topic for another show. But No, but 100%. That's why I say it's the culture for sure. But I mean, even within Vayner, I'm sure there are other creative directors who would have been like, yeah, that's great. You're an account person. I mean, I don't know. His willingness and even humility to be like, yeah, you can come try and play in our sandbox was really gracious. And I wouldn't have been able to have that experience without that. So then you, you move on to another job and then eventually you say, hey, like I'm going to make, if I make too much money, I'm kind of stuck in my career track now and I can't look back. I'm going to go at alone. So when you went alone, if I heard you right, you didn't really have the idea fully baked. Basically everyone we've talked to, I think is our 10th episode, has had that moment where they went out on their own. Most of the time they were working on it in the background, mm-hmm. but a few people, including Jason here, just YOLO'd it and like kind of quit, <laughs> give up salary and then figure it out. What was that like? Like, how stressful is that? Because in the content space, a lot of people have to choose that moment where they they jump over to the other side. Yeah, and for clarity, I don't know that I would prescribe what I did as like the right way to do it. <laughs> I just think it was just uh, for my situation where I was. I was working at Vayner, but I had gotten a promotion at within the company. And so I was working a lot in the ad industry is notorious for long hours and, and all those sorts of things. And that it's just part of how that industry works. It's how that services kind of work. So I just didn't have a ton of extra space outside of what I was doing for already whatever, however many hours a week to go create something new. I didn't have ambition to do like a side project that could just supplement income. I I wanted to be self-sufficient. That was really the objective more than anything else. And so it just became logical at some point, like 
well, I'm not self-sufficient. There's not really a path to become self-sufficient doing something additive or not one that makes sense intuitively to me. And so I have to give up something. I, you know, I think that's one thing that I, a lot of people that I talk to are like, well, how do I start? How do I? You have to be willing to give up something. It's either going to be your comfort, your money, your time. Like you don't just get to have the full experience right off the bat without giving up something. And for me, it was that, you know, the comfort of a salary. So apt for everybody. There's a sacrifice that needs to be made. Choose it, time, money, something else. Yeah, yeah. So for us, it was just being okay with that discomfort. Like I said, we had saved up some money so that we felt like, okay, if we don't make a dollar for the next six months, it won't be ideal, but like, we'll be okay. And I had some idea. So I have a business partner, Derek Rogers. He was building websites at the time. And so, you know, we're like, okay, well, we can, maybe we can go sell bigger websites or manage websites. Like I knew it was going to be the marketing space, but there's so many things and there's who are you serving and all these questions um, that we just had to dive in and start having conversations to see who would let us work with them in order to work through so much of that. And then the podcasting thing and, and creating content as a full-time, like that wasn't even on the radar. So if I hadn't gone through that initial, like, you know, we called it fancy freelance, where we just were like taking whatever in order to begin to get some traction. If I hadn't gone through that process, I never would have gotten to the point where we even started a podcast or, or certainly produced some for someone else. The traction thing is so important because one of our other guests mentioned, I can't remember who it was, I think it may have been Josh Babbitt early on, mentioned spinning wheels, right? You're spinning wheels, but then at some point the wheel sticks, you know, and the thing starts moving forward. What were the like one, two or three tangible events that happened to you where you felt that traction that you like you weren't just stuck in idle? You were actually starting to move along because, you know, momentum just builds from there. But getting that first grip into the in the mud is so important. Yeah, I think I can think of three things. The first was Gary coming on our show. Huge. I mean, yeah, just can't really, when you can just, and especially back then, like I said, podcasting wasn't quite as popular. And so to be able to say, hey, Celebrity X has been on this show as a guest. Do you want to come on? If you're anywhere under Celebrity X in terms of your awareness, you're compelled to come on now, right? So that was a huge door opening. The second was when we had a New York Times bestselling author named Jocelyn K. Glay. Her PR team reached out to us to come on the show. This was after the, and that was a huge eye opener. Like, okay, we have something here where it's not just shouting into the void. It's not just, you know, I think we, early on, we built pretty quickly up to like a thousand regular listeners and it felt really good, but like we knew how small that was in, in sense of media and it just was irrelevant, right? Like the right person who wanted access to that audience valued what we had built even in that short amount of time. So that was uh, number two. And then the third was we had our first venture capital firm reach out to us. It was someone I had kind of worked with in the past, just in brainstorming at Vayner, we had served one of their portfolio companies. So I was familiar with them, but had never worked with them before. And like, hey, we want to start a show. Their Dynamo Ventures is the venture VC firm. They're still with us today. Um, we want to start a show and we want to be the voice of the supply chain tech industry, which, you know, isn't super exciting or whatever, but like that was their stake in the ground and them coming to us and us then beginning to do that. That was the biggest one because then it, it showed us the playbook for how we go about continuing to grow the business. And today, I mean, their partner, Santosh Sankar is widely seen as the voice of that industry. He's asked to speak on every conference, you know, he's, and that's not because of us. It's just because he's been doing it for five and a half years at this point. So those would be the three moments, I think. Uh, Kyle, my point was going to be, there's been some common threads that we continue to hear. One being, I think, wife or partner of creator seems to be 
like the barometer or like the control factor for many people where it's like, hey, am I nuts? Like, can we do this? Which is probably great because there's probably a lot of people who need that. So it sounds like, Adam, you had that same thing. I know Kyle and I did. I forget the second one went on my mind, but maybe just speak to that for a moment because it's definitely a common thing we're hearing with all of our guests, but how important that is and maybe just the impact of, you know, does it slow us down? Does it get us to a point? Overall, is it beneficial? Maybe just give a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. I think uh, it's one of the things I take issue with a lot is a lot of people talk about how you need to start while you're young. You need you have to do it but while you have no ties or whatever. And I mean, that's great. And that works for a lot of people, obviously. But I think the constraint of having long-term relationships or families or whatever, responsibilities in one regard or another can really focus your attention and make you that much better because you have those constraints. And Sarah was extremely supportive. You know, if anything, I probably used her mentally as a like, ah, you know what? I shouldn't do this yet. I need to be able to make sure I'm blah, blah, blah. And she was probably more comfortable in hindsight than than what I thought. But yeah, 100% having both sides of the coin, right? Like having somebody who's super supportive and at the same time, just having those responsibilities, I think help you think a little bit more critically when you're jumping off there. So you get the client in the, uh, I want to get this right, the trucking tech space or the- It's a venture capital firm. Yeah, it's a supply chain tech. Okay, all right. <laughs> Supply chain tech. Which, which has become vitally huge. Huge in today's, yeah. today's world. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you said, which resonated to me, is so many, you know, again, we keep referring to the past guests, but we're picking up so many themes here. And this is for us too. You said, we knew we weren't shouting into the void. That just like for 20 seconds, talk about the, it doesn't, might not have a business impact. It might not actually matter for the numbers, but mentally, psychologically, knowing that there's some, particularly with a podcast, websites can kind of get real time feedback, but yeah. especially as a few years ago, things have gotten a little bit better, but podcast data still isn't great. Knowing that someone heard you, listened to you and communicates back to you that they've heard you, even if it's one person, how impactful is that? Yeah. And for your, you guys work with podcasters. Like, what do you see with the podcasters you work with when, when they have that moment? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it has gotten, I guess, technically a little bit better. It's awful. It's crazy that, that we're so antiquated still when it comes to data and analytics in the podcast space in comparison to anything else. You know, it's like radio, basically. But yeah, in terms of seeing that light bulb, it's kind of a funny story. So I, I was... Um, we had started it, we were producing the episodes as podcasts, and then we were also publishing them on Facebook. It was some product that Facebook was trying to do at the time. I don't even think they're doing it much anymore, but um, so we were, we were using that to publish. And I remember, you know, I didn't have a ton of conviction probably of my own, where I was headed. And so, like I said, I was just trying to make it up as we went. So I definitely borrowed some things. I definitely allowed myself to be viewed uh, similarly to Gary in terms of like black t-shirts, the setup, you know what I mean? Like it was just easy to borrow some of that equity. And two people commented, one person I remember commented like, why is this dude wearing, always wearing blacks, medium t-shirts? <laughs> and the other one was like, you know, who does this guy think he is? He think he's a mini Gary V or something like that. And both of them. The first hater is so important too. It is. Because that means you're, you're reaching enough people that someone doesn't like you. That's where I was headed. Like both of them, obviously I didn't love that in the moment. I'm like, it's not Smedium. I'm just, you know, whatever. But, but really quickly that turned into a positive of like, wait a second. 
these two fools watched this? Like people are paying attention to what we're saying. Like they know the connection of why it's relevant to someone like Gary Vee or, you know, you, there's just so many things you have to connect to make a negative comment. And so when that clicked for me and then just seeing the numbers increase over time, those were, that was really helpful. But I do think it's hard for new creators, especially in the podcast space. When you're first starting out, discovery is a real problem in the industry. It's something that like just isn't easily fixable. And so if you're looking too closely at day-to-day metrics, as opposed to thinking about, like we always talk about, think in a decade, don't think in quarters, you know? And some people can't afford to think in decades, but at least commit when you're starting to create, you know, we say at a, a minimum of 18 months. You cannot care about what the data says for 18 months. I mean, I would imagine, how long, Kyle, do you, did it take for Crossing Broad to start getting real, uh, real traction early on? You know, it's funny. I had started like five blogs before that and they never got any traction and I stopped because I never had that moment where someone was listening. And I was, I've told Jason on our last episode, it came out the other day, but I had created early on, you know, sometimes you get lucky with a hack, right? So this is, you know, one of those Facebook things. I created a fan page for Roy Halliday, the, you know, for people who oh, are yeah. from Philly, the Philly's pitcher, the day he's uh, got traded or signed here. And it just happened to be the one people gravitated towards. So within a few months, it got like 80,000 followers. So I had created this blog at the same time and I'm putting my links to the site on this fan page. And just because of the sheer volume and the, the fact that the, the audience is effectively the same, I'm getting eyeballs. Now it was a hack, right? So I I don't know if at that time I was doing it as a side project, but I don't know if I would have been able to stick with it for 18 months psychologically. That's why I was asking you about like how important is it to know that just one person is doing it. I would get excited when I would see six people on the site in real time. You know, and it's laughable now if there are six people on the website now, you know, something would be broken. Right. But at the time it's like, oh my God, there's six people consuming this and they've been on it for an average of 42 seconds. So I took a weird, like, hacked route to get there more quickly, but I think your advice is, it, particularly with podcasting, it's, Jason and I have talked about this, it's like compounding growth. You know, if you can get just an extra, we joke, we want people to tell two friends about this show because, you know, leave us a review, do all that stuff, but if you think it's good, tell two people. And then, you know, you begin to chip away at that, you know, at that block, and it's not the, you know, what's the thing they say about cutting down the tree? It's not the 85th swipe of the ax, it's the first 84 or whatever it is. Like, that's, you know, I think that's kind of the message there. Yeah, yeah, and that's the exact same, whether it be a hack that triggers it, and you weren't, you know, you kind of are a, a what is it, blind squirrel finding a nut or whatever, or it's a hater who come, like, being able to have the mentality to connect in your head, whatever it is, to some signal that shows consumption. Like the haters, that doesn't mean our show was taking off, but it was just a signal that people were paying attention enough to keep me going till numbers were going. So yeah, I think that's how we dealt with that early on. Kyle and I come from different schools of thought sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I had very little podcast experience you know, before we started doing this. And you know, he's had to reel me in a couple of times because my previous business experience was very low in the funnel, transactional, like boom, boom, boom. Like you are seeing results quickly. And it's everything that you guys were just talking about, understanding that it takes time and looking for that little piece of hope. You know, oh, it's getting there, it's working. And I imagine some of your clients too may need to be educated on that. Maybe they come in a little too aggressive looking for something from you. Do you see that uh, needing to kind of give that reassurance or education? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our sales process, especially as we've grown over the last 
few years is pseudo convincing people why they shouldn't start a show because we know it's going to be painful a few months down the road if they don't have that conviction. So yeah, definitely a ton of education on the upfront. And then, you know, in the weeds of it as well, just we have to keep pub- like just publish, just keep publishing, find a way to make sense of something that keeps you positive. And then it depends what you're doing. But in the B2B space, there's the inherent opportunity always to your point, Jason, of how do we see some transactional element come out of it? Well, your guest can always be someone that you can at least build a relationship with and potentially transact with at some point. And so that is something we can lean on at times, both for ourselves and for our clients. But I mean, listen, we still get occasionally, we'll see weird pops where people start listening to an episode from three or four or five years ago. And it's just because it got mentioned in a blog or it, the person, you know, it was a big enough guest and they retweeted it again. And there's just no way to factor that, right? Like in terms of planning, but all of those things add up over time as you continue to do it. So, you know, our show here is all about, you know, kind of the monetization aspect and the business models. And I think yours is unique. So when you started this out, you said, you know, you're kind of open, you weren't like exactly focused on what it was going to be and you were open to opportunities. But the end of the day, you're effectively, I guess, you know, you're providing a service to other podcasters. How you know, explain the business today. And then how long did it take you to kind of fully bake what the agency side of the business is? And then after that, I want to get into more of what you just talked about, how you kind of use the podcast is is top of funnel lead gen. Yeah. So our basic offerings today are really threefold. We do full end-to-end podcast production. So if you're a tech company and you want to launch a podcast about X, uh, customer data platform. We have the leading customer data platform. They're called Rudderstack out of San Francisco, and they have the data stack show. We came up with the brand, you know, uh, what's the identity of the show? What's the album art? What's it sound like? The, the audio identity? Who are we talking to? What does a guest list look like? And is it because our entire idea is we want to make the audience the hero of the show that we're going to produce. And so that hero is trying to solve a problem. How can our show help them solve that problem more effectively? And that could be by having a certain guest type on, that could be by creating a certain piece of content, et cetera, et cetera. So we do all of that work. We help you identify the guests. We will even book the guests for you. And then, you know, you guys are using Riverside to record this. We set up a Riverside studio. We send them the equipment. They show up have the conversation, and then log off. And our team takes it from there in terms of the production and promotion of the show moving forward. So that's kind of our core service. In addition to that, we have two other things that we've developed over time, which is our YouTube production service, which is very similar, (laughs) just doing it on YouTube. And that's for obvious reasons with the way the creator economy has gone over the last several years. And then just recently, I sent this to you, Kyle, and you actually already connected me with somebody, but uh, we started an unlimited editing service, which is just pure editing. You can upload as many episodes as you can over the course of a month. And we don't do any of the promotion or the booking or anything like that. It's just the editing, but our team will do that for you. So those are kind of the three services that we offer through Herd. And, you know, it's it took us all of five years to, to have all three of those. How much does the content you create bring in clients, either through people hearing you, liking the show, being like, hey, I want to work with this guy. And, and you said you can even use the guest as, you know, like a handshake sales strategy to get to know some people in the space and have a friendly face on the other side. Yeah, it's been cool to see both of those things happen. You know, having someone listen to the show, our show is very, so our show is called Content is for Closers. It's a very niche show. <laughs> like if you're if you're not into finding ways to leverage content for career or business or something, it's going to be super boring. Uh, and that's a good thing. So right off the bat, we know if someone is listening to our show, they're either already doing 
what we're talking about and it's just good for ideation or whatever, or they're probably a great prospect. And so early on, we tried to monetize through ads and quickly we found that the advertisers we could get were distracting from the message that we had, you know, because we could get an advert, like, I'm not going to say the names because I'm thankful, but we had a few advertisers that were CPG products or D2C or whatever. And that was good. But, you know, if you're thinking about content and all of a sudden there's an ad for some unrelated CPG product, it kind of just messes with what you're thinking about. And you have to get back into, okay, let's talk about content and, and growth. And so for us, we just got rid of that entirely because it might take twice as long and there might only be 10% of people who convert versus whatever number it would have been before. But that conversion is so valuable to us. You know, we, we retain our customers. We have a very long lifetime value with our customers. So we'd much rather just do that as opposed to advertising. And then on the, the other side of bringing on guests and developing relationships with them, I mean, it's not just for prospect development. It's things like this. Like, Kyle, you came on the show. We had a great conversation about your history, what you're doing with Monetize, all the ideas that you have around the creator economy, which serve all the people that, you know, we're trying to serve when it comes to our audience. And now we're having this conversation and more people are going to hear about our company because of this. So it's really just a network effect tool that we use, you know, as a part of an account-based marketing strategy, but not in like a devious way. It's just like organically, when you connect as humans, you're going to end up, you know, having a little bit of a ripple effect. Yeah, more of an observation than anything, but, you know, it's funny, like, I don't know, a little over a decade ago, for me, it felt like the only way to play and to get what you were looking for out of the internet was ads, SEO, sure. that you know, very basic toolbox. And the creator economy has essentially been able to bring about the relationship, word of mouth process that I think most people felt was going to be lost with the internet. And it, it has just come roaring back. And I think what you're describing is has a lot to do with that, where I think also too, people probably realize the insanity of some of the wasteful inefficiencies of Google ads, Facebook ads, if it's not done right. right, And then essentially using yourself and your network in the end is probably the best suited way to grow a business anyway. Yeah, and then just building a platform like what you all are doing and what we have been doing and are continuing to do, it just has endless ramifications. Like the things that I've been able to do because of our show are kind of ridiculous. You know, we've been featured a bunch of different places. I've been asked to speak. Like I spoke at a, uh, a founder's camp for a, a venture capital firm. I've never raised money. I, like, you know what I mean? There's so many things that I'm not, definitely not qualified to do, but I have this one slither that I've developed talking points over, which is what we're talking about right now. And so that has value to someone because of that. I, that wouldn't happen outside of the podcast. So, I mean, it's all very intuitive stuff, but it's just like doing it and actually realizing it, I think is the experience. I do think there's a lot of people out there who it's probably not that intuitive to, right? I mean, if a lot of people look and I think if whether they want to be an influencer, a YouTuber, a podcaster, I certainly did early on. You look at it through the lens of more traditional media that you know, radio, television, as the primary ones, newspapers, if it's a website or a blog, and you're thinking about, I can get an audience and then I could sell subscriptions or ads. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they kind of look at it through solely that lens, which is a good lens. If you're good at it, you know, it works. But, you know, I think we're seeing more and more and, and certainly what the your show and your business focus on are people who are using it a bit more strategically like you are to create opportunities. Talk about how do you have to walk your clients through that 
and say like, hey, don't think about your podcast as a way to get advertising dollars. Think of it as a way to create business or opportunities because I do think that's lost on a lot of people. And if you're in the right niche, you only need a hundred of the right listeners to get one opportunity. It could be worth millions of dollars if it's the right business partner or client or something like that. Yeah, not to sound sanctimonious or virtue signal because I really believe what I'm about to say. Even saying that, like, hey, don't look at it as a way to advertise, look at it as a way to monetize essentially at some point, I think is the wrong first step. I think it's like the near second step, but serving that 100, and that's where I'm saying like, it sounds sanctimonious, but serving that 100 people is the actual gateway. It's the actual like key. If you can just find a way to add actual value to 100 people, like most jobs don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most people who are making well into the six figures are pushing emails around and they're not serving a hundred people. Like that is a real accomplishment. And so if you're able to do that from there, it's just a matter of having the right things fall your way, making the right connections, scaling becomes the issue. But that initial 100, you know, that's what I, when I was talking about my first year, I was just trying to find what it is that I could do to serve, right? And I think if I would have framed it this way, I probably would have gotten to where we got to more quickly. But I was overly concerned with like, how am I going to make the next dollar? I don't have that coming. And so it's not easy, but I would start there. And then, yeah, we have to always remind our clients, like, don't be out there pitching your product. Nobody wants to... It's not a show if you're pitching your product. It's a really bad QVC ad and no one's going to subscribe to that. So teaching them and coaching them on how to tell a story, how to structure a narrative that is bigger than themselves or the technology that they're selling or the, you know, what they offer as a VC or whatever the the case may be, what the sports blog is, like finding some way to make it about the customer and solving that problem, everything else will kind of fall into place after that. It's a really interesting way of putting it because you always hear that phrase, a thousand true fans for someone who wants to have an audience. You know, it's true. If you find a thousand people, you can find a way to monetize it. But you're you're shrinking that down, you know, by 90%, taking it to a hundred people and saying like, hey, you don't even need to monetize it the traditional way. You serve these people and good things will happen outsized to success that you might just be able to get from building an audience and doing the traditional thing. And I never really thought about it that way, but I guess, you know, you see a hundred downloads in a podcast or something or on a website and you're like, well, that's not that many people. There's people with tens of thousands, millions of viewers and listeners and readers. But then you think about it, like, as anyone stood in front of a room, you know, most people aren't Gary Vee, right? They're not in front of a room of a hundred people right. ever, right. you know, or once in their life, you can remember that time you gave a big speech. It's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it in light of that, it's essentially a really full movie theater, you know, that's listening to you talk about whatever thing that's never going to happen. You're not going to go stand in front of a, a movie theater of people and talk about, I'm not going to stand in front of a movie theater of people and talk about like, Hey, here's three tips to make your storytelling on your show. But like, nobody, nobody wants to go watch that, but effectively that's what people are doing and they're opting into it. So the psychology behind that is really, really powerful when you think about, okay, well, if they're opting into that, a, okay, great. How do we find more people like that? But B, what else does that signal? What else are they willing to do? How else can I make connections or serve them or whatever? So yeah, I, I think it's just a good starting place as you're, as you're thinking about it. What do you see as the next step for your business, both in terms of content on the pod and then the business itself? What trends are you seeing, particularly with podcasting that you guys want to be there to, to service? Do you think need servicing? Yeah. So I think on the trends piece, you know, okay. So the biggest thing right now is create once deploy everywhere. And people are, you know, you hear that all the time, 
repurposed content is the phrase. And it's a valid strategy, but it's really almost always done incorrectly or poorly because repurpose doesn't mean copy and paste, you know, and that's what it ends up being most of the time. It means repurpose. So if we're having this conversation and then you just literally took whatever pieces of it and posted it on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, like all the same piece, that's not repurposing. That's just blasting people with terrible content. And so not terrible content, but you know, for the platform. So uh, no, that's because of me. So anyway, you know, that I think is a real problem. I think it's something that right now people are getting overwhelmed with the amount of content that comes uh, through their feed and looks the same and has a So we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we can help our customers be different in the feed, how we can do thumbs, you know, how you can create thumb stopping creative out of the stuff that they're already producing. And uh, there's some interesting companies doing this. I'm trying to remember Jelly, uh, you know, the YouTube platform? Yeah. Jelly Roll. I can't remember off the top of my head. It, It helps you repurpose content in an automated way. Like shorts, you mean? Like quick create shorts to utilize out of the content? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some platform that does that. Anyway, that's interesting. And we are currently building software that is the intent and purpose of it is to help our creators be able to do that more effectively. So it's not necessarily a trend. The other thing is we don't want to follow trends, especially in this space. You know, podcasting has been around a long time. I think it'll be around a long time, but the trends within it are very short-lived. So our goal is to create these services and eventually products that help people just maintain consistency past, you know, the ups and downs of whatever may be happening in the industry. So, yeah, so that's kind of where we're focused and what we're headed towards in terms of just our business. I think it's just continuing to find really good talent. We do everything here with, you know, part of our strategy is everyone's full time that works for us. We don't work with um, freelancers or or outsource the production uh, because we want people embedded who are really thinking about these problems. And so that's hard. That's not always easy to find talent that wants to do that or is great at it. So continuing to find talent, educate the talent, those are big challenges for us as well as creating creating new products and services that help our clients do the same. How big is the overall team? Seven people. Seven, seven full-time people is no joke. Yeah, for us, it's cool, man. Like, I don't think I ever would have thought we were... I was just hoping to get to Christmas. I quit in uh, quit, <laughs> quit in May. I was hoping to get to Christmas that year. And yeah, to have seven people is something that we're pretty proud of. You should be. That's another trend. Jason, you mentioned this on our last episode. You know, successful people set a timeline, right? You're going to do something. You said from May until Christmas. You know, I was in a similar boat and I gave myself four months. And it's like, you have to know your limit. It's like almost capping your downside on, to go back to the beginning of our conversation here. When you're taking that leap, you take the risk, but you got to cap the downside somewhere if you totally screw it up. Yeah, that's a great point. That's something that we did at a few levels. We really don't do a ton of like forward looking, like five year planning, stuff like that. I mean, we've only existed for five years, but, but we did do that. And that's something that I think was really powerful for us. Mentally, I was like, okay, I have to like see progress by Christmas or run back and be like, please forgive me. But we really set like, okay, so we're going to give ourselves three years to make this into something past like, like I said, a fancy freelance company. And right at our third year, our third year was right when COVID began to happen. We had just seen a huge spike in new clients and things like that. And then people got scared 
And so then we saw a bunch of people bail, but then COVID, everybody needed to figure out how to create remotely. And so all of a sudden our service was really in vogue again. So it's just interesting. Obviously we had nothing to do with timing all of that, but just having those timeframes in place, I think help you be aware of opportunities inside of that. I was going to ask you last one here, I think, uh, until we get to a couple quick pointed ones, if you got a few more minutes. Sure. Yeah. So I was going to kind of stick my finger in the air on the COVID wins, right? So obviously early on in COVID, people are creating, they spend more time at home. They're thinking about how can I create, get myself out there. So many other mediums, right? You know, you talk about streaming, Netflix and all of those problems. Have you seen a change over the last, I don't know, six months since things are, you know, people generally just don't care anymore, right? Like, has that changed? Do you see that with podcasting as being a positive or negative? Have you lost clients, see more people coming into the space? Like, what do you, just listener numbers overall? In terms of people consuming less? Or- yeah, sorry, it was a terrible question. I guess what what podcast trends, you know, both with your clients and listeners, do you see, if any, now reverting back to what it was pre-COVID or is that momentum just kept up for you guys? Or you guys are in the space in general. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. The year before COVID, we went from 800,000 podcasts ever having existed to, I think we're right about to cross, we're halfway between two and 3 million right now in the course of whatever that was. I mean, podcasts have existed, like I said, for a decade prior, longer, and it took all that time. And then last year, it's more than doubled, last couple of years. So while it's definitely dipping, the new normal in terms of volume and the amount that people have come to rely on the medium is still so exponentially higher than what it was even 24 months ago or 36 months ago that there's just tons of attention. I think the headline is like podcasting is down, but it's like down from what? Down from last week when there was, you know, everybody was stuck in their house or down from, if you look just a little bit in in recent history, we're way, we're 100% past where we were. And that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is quality is always in vogue. And the barrier to entry has continued to lower when it comes to creating, which is great and kind of negative. It's great that there's more players than ever that are in the space. It's negative that it's something like 80% of podcasts don't make it past episode seven in their history because they just, it's hard and I'm not sure how I'm going to mind all the things we've already talked about. So when it comes to creators who are serious, who have money or need to outsource the some of the grunt work of it or whatever, whatever, like, no, our business has not slowed down because of who we're working with and because they understand that attention is still there. But at the same time, everything else is up too. you know, uh, every other digital media consumption is up too. that's competing with podcasting. And so that's why we've had to get a little bit more creative in terms of beginning to help our clients find their way on YouTube, help other people figure out what it looks like to, you know, Jason might not want to go on there and make some dancing TikToks, but TikTok's probably a platform that would work for you all if if you splice up the right pieces. So how, what does that look like? Well, that's where we can come in and kind of offer some of those things in addition to the core offering that we do. It's a great point about the dip, but an overall trend lined up. I tweeted something about e-commerce about a week ago. It's the same thing. You know, like all the e-commerce stocks are getting absolutely hammered. And it's like, okay, it's reverting a little bit. People are going out, but look at the base. It's starting now at a base that's twice as high. Like it's still a thing. There's just an anomaly that happened, but it reset everything to a new level. It's It's a good point about podcasting. Adam, if you could change uh, one thing over the past five years, anything about the business, what would it be? I just talked about how important consistency is. We got really, so we saw the show shoot up. We got really busy signing new clients and I let our own show lag for probably, it just wasn't a focus for probably like 18 months. 
And the amount of progress we lost because of that, like we had such heavy momentum and we've gotten some of it back and our show is great. We enjoy it. It's a fun thing, but it kills me whenever I think about it too long, just, you know, how much progress was lost there. And if I would have been more willing to delegate, if I would have been more willing to include, you know, get things away from me that I I had no business being involved with earlier, I could have focused on that. Um, But it was just a lesson we had to go through to learn. Is there a moment I say, is there? Our assumption with some guests was always, what was the moment where you thought this might fail or not work? But some guests said, we, I never had that moment. So was there a moment like that for you? And if there was, what was it? Where it was either not going to work or not sustainable? You know, your business and the podcast, either or. No, I'm not those guests. I The question is like, which moment today will that happen? Uh, that's, that's a pretty frequent, you know, thought or concern, I think is just, part of it. But I think the single scariest moment was the beginning of COVID. We had three clients pretty immediately with all the hysteria that was going on. Like I remember the NBA, they they like stopped a game in the middle of the game, I think, or something like that. It might've been the next day or two days later, we had three clients be like, Hey, we need to stop working with you. And they were all contractually bound and et cetera, et cetera. And it just didn't matter. I think that was probably the scariest moment just to be like, what is happening? You know, how are we going to sustain this? By the way, there's probably no safety net of of like jobs right this second. Um, That ended up resolving itself pretty quickly. But the fear of like, what are we doing? Are we fake like radio shows for a living? Is this a real thing? You know, when somebody's going to find out that uh, we're just recording this online and, you know, (laughs) why would they pay us for this? That whole thing is a, is a pretty consistent friend of mine. It's the ever existing doubt and someone's going to find out I'm a fraud. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yep. For sure. It's funny. I know I keep reverting back to previous guests, but I say because our mandate, you talked about like serving the audience. We've always felt like our mandate here is to identify the trends that we see between people who create content and what their business models are. And that's another one that I think we've heard like four episodes in a row now. Someone's saying, I wake up every day thinking I suck. You know, we have this guy, Brandon (laughs) Pernay, that's good sports. Got hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. Every video gets a ton of views. And every day he wakes up thinking, can I ever make a good video again? And he's, you know, he's doing it multiple times a week. Just, Just before I got on with you guys, I was doing a recording with another Pennsylvania guy, actually another brand, Ugmunk is what it's called. Their founder's name is Jeff Sheldon. And and uh, they're extremely successful D2C, D2C company. And he said, you know, I've done all these launches. I've created all these products. And every single time I have a new idea, I think, what if all of that was luck and this one fails and I get exposed? And I think it's just something that a lot of us probably live with. Yeah, no, totally. And what's that last one? Is there a tool besides, and I want you to plug away your company here at the end, but is there a tool besides yours? Is there a tool or service that you can't live without that you think other creators creating content or people in small business could also benefit from using? That's a great question. I have an exercise that's been really great in terms of creators. I've started doing morning pages, I think it's called, or I don't know. I just write like longhand, three pages every morning, of whatever's in my brain. And it just serves as a flushing exercise so that I can then go and actually create something valuable. You know, all of the negative, all of the like fear of what we just talked about, all of the uh, problems that I might be facing for some, I'm not, I don't necessarily write about those things, but somehow they just kind of get flushed out during that process. As I write with long hand, I've had to learn how to write again and it is super painful. My wrist is constantly hurting me. But aside from that, that exercise, I would say for people who are trying to create 
something is very, very meaningful and it's led to a plethora of new ideas for me anyway. So I would recommend that. In terms of tools, I don't know. I, I'm a big Notion fan. I mean, I, th- I feel like that's a basic answer, but that's how I collect ideas and, and kind of catalog thoughts and, and all that sort of thing. I do all my writing initially in Notion for shows and things like that. So yeah, I'm a huge Notion fan. Always loved to nerd out on templates. If anybody has some, shoot them over. I love love looking at those things. Love the writing one. That's so, you know, particularly people who create content, like you got to be in the right headspace. And if you're, you get bogged yeah. down with other stuff, you're just done. You're done. All right. Plug away. Where can people find you, your podcast, your business? You know, we got some decent listeners at this point, you know, we're hoping to grow, but I'm sure there's somebody out there benefit from working with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the podcast is the best place to start. Uh, if you want to get a better sense for how we think about content, how we think about creation. And we, and we have a lot of conversations with people like you, Kyle and, and Jason, we should have you on next where with people who have been doing this, right? People who are actually living in the trenches, much like this show. So if you're interested in that and you like hearing about that, how to use content to capitalize in some way, it's probably a show of interest for you. It's contentisforclosers.com and everything else kind of falls on the back of that. So our business is Herd Media. It's called trustherd.com. And uh, my Twitter's Adam Vasquez, V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. It's a hard one, but you know, you'll find it if you look long enough. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam. It was great. All right. So that was Adam Vasquez, content is for closers and herd media. Jason, one of the things that really jumped out at me yet again is somebody who's doubting that they're ever going to do something good, you know, on a day-to-day basis, despite years of, of successes. I think we've identified yet another theme, which we talked about a lot there. Yeah, it's definitely the common theme, the humble approach to the everyday, can I continue to do this? I think I said on the, was this podcast or another, like, oh, is someone going to find out I'm a fraud today? You know, even if you're not a fraud, like you, you just feel like someone's going to figure out that I don't have this all figured out. But Adam absolutely has a lot figured out, but still is humble enough to know that he has to keep working hard to do what he's doing. I think it's probably a trend in ambitious people or creative people who are going it on their own because people like that are always shooting for one step to better themselves. And that phrase, fake it till you make it, I think can be misconstrued in both directions. People say that there are people who truly fake it till they make it, which is fraud in its worst case. And you know that's not what people are recommending. But I think the positive spin on fake it till you make it is, hey, if you're trying to grow something, you're always pushing the boundaries of what you're good at and you have to be learning as you go. Otherwise, you're not growing. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. Take a super successful business person. I don't know, pick Michael Rubin, who's the CEO of Fanatics and influential in the sports media, betting, e-commerce space. That is someone who is, he doesn't have an expertise in all of those areas. You're constantly pushing to be better. And that's at the top end billionaire status. And I think that trickles down to the individual level. So it's not about being a fraud. It's about pushing yourself and always, you know, sometimes being uncertain about where you're, you know, about where you're going next. Yeah. And always wanting to learn and be on top of the game. And also one of the best ways to prove that you know what you're doing is to help others. And that's exactly what we're seeing, you know, with Adam. And not only has he learned and been able to get himself in the position he has over five years with this new business venture, but then actually go out and help and guide people on how to be more successful on their podcasts, you know, along with that agency experience that he has, you know, it's that's proof in itself. It's a great model he has too, because he's 
he uses it for business development, both directly and indirectly. He uses it to create, you know, further his brand. Maybe some of his guests wind up becoming clients, but he he casts a wider net about providing value to people and seeing what comes his way. And he used us being on his show as a good example. It's someone we're now networking with. And, you know, I didn't know Adam. I don't think he knew us, you know, prior to a couple of months ago when we kind of swapped podcast interviews there. So playing the long game is important. I think his other message, and certainly it's, look, he's a podcast production agent. It works in his benefit if people keep going with their podcast. But I, this is my experience with blogging, and I, I know yours as well. You have to do that consistency. And it is, to me, the most difficult thing. We talk about getting traction in the mud. The most difficult thing is knowing that there's somebody on the other end consuming what you have. Once you understand that, I could tell you firsthand the difference between having five loyal readers or listeners and 5,000 on a psychological basis is almost zero. It really is. The first five can even be more important than going from 40,000 to 50,000, regardless of scale. It's just about knowing that someone's on the other side. And the only way to really do that in the beginning is you just have to keep at it. Podcasts probably the best medium for it because there's not a great platform like Twitter that allows you to go instantly viral if you don't already have an audience to promote it. And the only way to do that is just keep doing it and know that maybe your first two, three or four episodes have zero downloads or one download. And by the time you get to episode 10, you got 10 listeners. And then there's compounding growth rates there. If you have a content that is evergreen like this show or like Adam's show, news podcasts are different. But when you, by the time you get to episode 100, even if you only have 10 listeners per episode, you now have a thousand downloads versus just 10 when it was episode one. So there is that that impact of compounding too that I think he does a nice job of preaching on. And people, again, so much as psychologically, you just got to get your head around that, that part of it in the beginning. Your point is a really, is a solid one in talking about getting those first five readers or first five listeners. The psychological impact of that is really key because even in your case, if we're talking about writing something, what you wrote attracted those five people. And even if there is 500 or 5,000, you're not creating that content in any different way just because there's more eyeballs on it. When if you are, you're making a big mistake because you've attracted those first five for a reason and most likely that multiplies out. So yeah, sometimes I think we do get caught up in metrics, especially in, you know, in today's world that are relatively pointless at times and not having to do with the true monetization of the content. That's so true. You refine your efforts over time and you certainly get better at it. You learn what the audience, not just what they like and what they don't like, but what you're good at, you know, what works, what doesn't. But you're right. Like the person who's creating the content in episode one or or blog post one versus a hundred, it's still the same person. It's still generally the same content and thoughts. Maybe it just grows in polish and efficiency over time. But yeah, it's a really good point. You don't change as, as a person. You know, speaking of like kind of knowing you're not shouting out into a, an echo chamber. So I want to, I'll shout out a listener of ours, right? You know, we kind of said on this podcast before, hey, if you tell two friends, tell two friends, we promise to engage with you. So we had our listener reach out to us. I think he'll probably be okay with us name dropping him here. Uh, Bobby Trossett, hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name right. So he was a sports talk radio host in Maryland or in Baltimore has left to kind of become his own media brand covering the Ravens predominantly in a big football market through YouTube and through podcasts. And uh, he reached out to us on DM, found us, I think, through Apple Podcasts. 
and was like, hey, you guys have been in this space, not only the creator space, but also the sports space. What are some things you know I could be doing to grow my audience? And he's off to a, a great start. He's got 7,000 followers on Twitter, more on Facebook, almost 5,000 subscribers on YouTube, and he hasn't even entered his first full football season yet. So you know, I, I had a 30-minute call with him yesterday, but just as a can't forever do 30-minute calls with listeners as we grow, but you know, we really value you know, like we just talked about those first five, 10, 100 people who are willing to listen and engage with us. So if you are like this show and think, you know, you want to run some ideas by us, like we're happy to get on a call or engage with you on Twitter or email with whatever you're doing, because we just want to bring some value here as well to people who are listening. But I'll tell you, you know, walking the walk here, and sorry, it's kind of like a rambly segue, but walking the walk, hearing someone who's listened to us, right? This is only episode 10 for us. And wants our input that's one of those positive signals that I know for both of us felt really good. It's like, hey, this is, there are people out there hearing this. So yeah. And I, I did tell them to tell two friends, by the way. Well, of course, you have to always tell two friends and then they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends. But one of the things too that's great about that is that it immediately starts kind of like a relationship in a way where you want to follow up with someone and then potentially, you know, we have these folks on as guests and hey, you know, you reached out to us and this, how has this gone? And then they all of a sudden almost become in that expert view, like, hey, I learned this. And then when you have a learning, you are now a notch above someone who has not had that learning yet. And it's not a competition to get above someone. It's the process of, I gained this, I can help you now. And I think that's what's happening so much in the podcasting world. Some of what Adam was talking about, he, he got so focused on working with clients and being part of that side of his business that he forgot or didn't give as much attention to you know, their own podcasts, you know, and growing that as well. And then him being able to find that balance between the two has really been the key to success. It's a great point. Him stopping a podcast midway and all the lost, you know, sort of audience equity with that is, it's a really good message. There is a balance between just doing, you know, if you record a hundred episodes of your podcast and you have eight downloads after a hundred episodes, all right, the content probably isn't that good. So you ha you, there is a line here where you can't just you know forever not have an audience, but you have to be willing to accept for a little while you won't. But he had one, right? He had those positive signals that he had a quality audience. And then the minute you lose tension, the minute you stop showing up in someone's feed or in their daily routine or their weekly routine, you've lost a segment of your audience. And the longer that goes, you know, the worse it gets. Like, I'll tell you, like, I was panicky this week because the 4th of July, we're getting this episode's coming out about two days later than most episodes. You know, it'll be a one-time thing and we're going to show up this week. But, you know, he hit the pause button and you hear how much he regrets it over time because it's like, oh man, it takes forever to get that back. You know, it's like a recession in the economy. You know, you might get back, but it's like that checkmark shaped recovery. It doesn't happen right away. I compare it to um, like exercising. I'm getting back into an exercise routine. I could tell you're busting out of that shirt. I mean, it's like, I'm mean, look out, right? Incredible Hulk. But you know, one of the things that people talk about is if, even if you fall off, like you miss two, three, four days, it's okay. Like just get back in and keep going because that ability to just do it again just gets the train going. Yes, it's not going at the same speed it was the week before, but the train didn't stop and people didn't you know, embark and leave. You know, so embark or debark. I don't know. Disembark. Disembark. Yeah, disembark. Disembark. There you go. There's my horrendous education coming up from, I'm not going to say where I went. I don't want to kill that. I don't want to kill my alumni. It wasn't Villanova. That's why. That's why I don't have the vocabulary that Kyle has. Was it King's College? Was it King's? No. Come on. 
What's Kings? I'm thinking Alexander Hamilton. He went to Kings College. Kings is like it's like the little brother school to the University of Scranton. Scranton, yeah. I don't know why I was thinking that. Okay. Scranton's a party school, but I, I like to think that we were an intelligent group of, of jackasses. All right, so this is probably a good spot to wrap it. Uh, make sure you subscribe <laughs> to your favorite jackass. All right, so if you like this show, if you find it helpful, if it's still early days, if you want to have a 30-minute call with one of us, the only deal is you got to tell two friends. I did tell Bob, he's got to tell two friends. So, and here's why. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. I'm just dumb enough to not know whether that's compound growth or exponential growth, but it really doesn't matter. If you like this show, tell two friends. Reach out to us on Twitter. I am at Kyle Scott L. You are at Jazernick, Z-I-E-R-N-I-C-K. And the show is Monetize Media HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. No spaces. So please contact us. And Jason, what should they do with the podcast? They should. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, make sure to go give us a five-star rating and drop a note in there too, even if it's about you know a joke from something you heard on the show or something funny or, hey, Jason is a jackass from the University of Scranton. It at least lets us know you listened. Thanks for listening. 